So he has access to heaven, right? But no power over those who are in Christ. But he has access to be accusing the brethren. Well, we're going to see later in Revelation, he's going to be cast out of heaven. He has no access. And he's going to be confined to this earth. And that's when all hell is going to break loose. That's when the great tribulation begins. Right? Him and his demonic cohorts, they're going to be confined to this earth. And that's where we're going to see all these different judgments, right? Coming upon the earth. Because this earth is going to really go to hell. It really is. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Chapel Echo Park here in Los Angeles, California. We are a small fellowship of diverse believers who want to serve our Lord and do His will. You can find out more about our fellowship at ccechopart.com. Join us for our live stream on Sunday in the New Testament and Wednesday evenings in the Old Testament. Now let's get into the Word of God in our weekly podcast. The teaching is from Pastor David Higa and will be the study of the revelation of Jesus Christ and the book of Revelation. So John records this, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Verse two, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around, verse 4, the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. Verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Verse 8, the four living creatures each having six wings were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We have victory. The church has victory at the rapture of the church. Our faith turns to sight. Okay, so if the church is in heaven, right, right here, Revelation chapter 4, right, and then Revelation chapter 5, as I said, the scroll is introduced to seven seals. Everything from this point on that deals with the earth, right, the church is in heaven. It deals with, with church what? being at the marriage supper of the land and then judgment upon the church. Now, the reason I don't mark that too is that the church is not going to experience the tribulation. And we're going to look at these scriptures, this philosophical, I think, arguments of the rapture of the church that God is not going to judge the righteous along with the wicked. Righteous not because we're so good. Righteous because we're forgiven. Right? 
Right? We're declared righteous, not by our works, by Christ's work for us, right? And that's the justification by faith. We're declared righteous because we ask the Lord to forgive us, right? We repent of our sin, ask Him to be our Lord, therefore we're declared righteous. And so once you're declared righteous by faith, you're not going to go through this tribulation, right? That's going to be reserved for those that are not of the faith, okay? These are arguments for the rapture of the church, okay? So I'm going to spend the rest of our time cross-referencing to you these specific rapture verses. Now, I'm going to give you these scriptures very slowly for you to write down in your notes. I'd like you to read this in your own time. We're going to go through all eight of them, okay? And if I don't finish, if I run out of time, we'll pick up next week and finish them along with chapter 4. But I want to spend the rest of the time referring you to these rapture verses. So we believe there's a literal rapture of the church, seven-year tribulation, a thousand-year rule and reign, and then the eternal state. But many don't see it as that, right? They kind of see the tribulation as symbolic. They see the millennium as symbolic. So they connect the rapture verses with his return that takes us to the eternal state. That we don't hold to. But there are those Christians, there are those in certain churches that hold to that. But I want you to understand what we believe, why we believe it, and why we respectfully disagree with that. Okay, the other ver uh, version. Okay, so all that to say, let's look at these verses one at a time. Okay, so there's three classic rapture verses. And um, actually two, but I say three because there's one that I think Jesus refers to, which I think is talking about the rapture. Okay, so let's look at the ones that uh, Paul highlights first. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter. Actually, let me give you these verses first. You can write them down and then we'll look at them. Okay, so first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Write this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. The second one we're going to look at is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And the one that Jesus refers to in the Upper Room Discourse is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. And then also Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now this gives us kind of the technical description of the rapture, what it is, okay? Now, I'm going to refer to these scriptures and have you write them down. This gives more of the philosophical argument of the rapture. And what I mean by the philosophical argument is that in the scriptures we see that God does not judge the righteous along with the wicked. He always we see in Scripture, he removes the righteous and then judgment. This is a philosophical argument that God is not going to judge the righteous along with the wicked. He's always going to remove them. Okay? All right, so the fifth Scripture I want to give you is Genesis chapter 18, verse 23, along with 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. So that's combined. Genesis chapter 18, verse 23, along with 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. That's the account in Genesis where... Remember Jesus, I believe it's Jesus, bartering with Abraham. Remember, I'm going to destroy Lot or the city that Lot's living in, Sodom. Are you going to destroy it if you find 50 righteous? Remember that? He says, no, I'm not going to destroy it. What about 40? What about 30? It goes all the way down to 10. And the Lord says, no, I'm not going to destroy it if I find 10 righteous. They didn't even find 10 righteous. But note this, this philosophical argument. What happened? Before he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, what? He removed Lot and his family. He removes the righteous and then judgment. So that's why 
we hold to the um, to the rapture. The rapture is the righteous will be removed, and then the seven-year tribulation of judgment. Okay. Also, the sixth scripture is First Thessalonians chapter five, verses one through eleven. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses one through eleven. Then the seventh scripture is Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through eleven. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through eleven. And then the eighth one is Luke chapter twelve, verses thirty-five, thirty-six, and thirty-seven. It's a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Luke chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 37. Okay, so we're going to spend the rest of our time cross-referencing to these, right? And this is going to give us language on why we believe that there's a rapture of the church which is separate from Jesus' return. Okay? All right, so let's look at, firstly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, right at verse 50. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, we're going to read. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, right at verse 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption, right? So this body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It needs a resurrected body. And we're going to see the resurrected body made for the heavens at the rapture. Okay, so he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed, or all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the what? Last trumpet. Sound familiar? Let me read Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 to you. After these things, John writes, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here. So you think the trumpet sounds and they come up into heaven? Is that reading too much into it? Again, what my point is that Revelation doesn't specifically say there's a rapture but it infers it, again, by the omission of the word churches in Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the end, except for that one instance at Revelation 22, 17, right around there. But then also here, right, like a trumpet. Notice all the scriptures about the rapture I'm going to give you that talks about a trumpet sound, right? And so let's keep reading. Revelation chapter 1, uh, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And so the dead in Christ will be raised first. That's a trumpet. When Jesus says, come on up into heaven, all those that are died in faith, right, that are buried in the ground, they're going to receive a resurrected body first. And then we're going to see that we who are living, the generation that's living at the time of the rapture, they're going to receive a resurrected body following those that have died in faith, okay? And it's all going to be very fast at the twinkling of an eye. And so you've seen those pictures, right? And maybe you watched, um, remember that movie? Um, yeah, Left Behind, right? right? All these people, all of a sudden you see all their, uh, their clothes, right? It's going to be at the twinkling of an eye. They're going to follow those that have died in Christ, okay? That's the picture, right? And so he says, at the last trumpet, when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So no more death for the church. The victor, they've finished. We finished the race. Right? And thus, we see representative, these 24 elders, the representative of the church that has this victor's crown. 
we finish the race, this race of faith, right? And so it says, then death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So until that time, we need to be what? Steadfast, immovable. And, and this is where we're going to go, people. We need to be focused on eternal things, not temporal things. Because I've got to tell you, people, and we're going to see this in these scriptures, right? Look to the right and to the left of you, in front of you and behind you. It's all going to be gone. Everything you own, all the clothes, right? all the fancy jewelry they have, if you have fancy jewelry, the cars, the houses, the clothes, it's all going to be gone, my goodness. moment, twinkling of an eye. So what are we living for? She says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We ought to be serving people, serving the Lord, right? Because really, the decisions people make in this life have eternal consequences. We need to be about the business of the Lord, okay? Now, the second passage I want to give you on the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 8. Let's read that together. It says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or died, right? Died in faith. Lest you, sorrow, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him, bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, the context here is that, you know, he's writing to Thessalonica because there's some false teachers that come in and say, Hey, you missed the day of the Lord. You're still here. And so he said, hey, no, you're okay, right? And so he gives them kind of this teaching on the rapture and what's going to come around the rapture. Okay, so now verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, those who have died. Okay, so the dead in Christ again are going to rise first. Now, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from, the, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with what? The trumpet of God. So here we see that trumpet again. Let me read Revelation 4 again. Verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Come up here to what? Heaven. So the rapture of the church, we go to heaven, right? In our resurrected bodies? To be with the Lord? It's at the trumpet sound. Okay, so again, Revelation 4 doesn't specifically say rapture, but it surely infers it. Again, by the omission of churches, the word churches from chapter 4 all the way to the end, but then right here, this trumpet sound, and also the 24 elders with what? The victor's crown? Stephanos, right? They finished the race. They got a crown, right? We're going to be there too. It's representative of the church, okay? So we see the inference, right? The church is on earth, Revelation 2 and 3, the letters, and now they're in heaven. How do they get there? It's at the rapture of the church, okay? So, verse 17, then we who are alive, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's where we get the word rapture. Okay, it's harpazo in the Greek. Many of you have studied this, and this is repeat to you, but I'm just going to say it if you haven't, right? Harpazo is the Greek word, right? The New Testament is, the original language is in Greek, but it's also translated into Latin, right? The Latin Vulgate. And so 
The Latin word for this, harpazo, or caught up, is rapturo. And that's where we get the word rapture. So we've coined that word, rapture, the rapture of the church. It's to be caught up. It's actually kind of a violent act. Man, you don't have any decision. <laughs> you're, you're in Christ? Boy, you're, you're taken up. And I like that, right? You don't say, well, you know, Lord, um, I want some time or something like this, right? I want some time to, to spend with so-and-so. No, you just boom, you're gone. I think that's good, right? And so, caught up, raptured, right? Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in there. Now, I want you to note this. We're going to be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Does that sound like his return? Well, he's returning for the church, but it doesn't sound like the return to this earth. And this is where we kind of differ with a lot of our brothers and sisters in the Lord, many of whom I respect as Bible teachers, but this is where I disagree in the sense that when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom on this earth, he returns with the saints, but then at the rapture verse is what he brings the saints home with him to heaven. And there's a literal seven-year tribulation, and I believe that, uh, the church is in heaven, that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. What's the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, the bridegroom is Jesus. He comes for his bride at the rapture, right? And what happens? They be consummated in heaven. And we're going to see a scripture, what's happening there in heaven. But as they're in heaven, what's happening is on this earth, judgment is being pronounced to purge this earth from sin so that Jesus and his bride can return and rule and reign. Now, what happens when a bride gets married, takes on the name of Christ? Could that be the new name? Remember that? The new name given, could that be? The church in Philadelphia, a new name, could that be? Those that are faithful, taking on the name of the husband, could be, right? So all these things kind of start to fit together, don't they? Right? You kind of connect the dots. And so we see right here, right? We meet the Lord in there. It's different than the Lord returning to this earth. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore com comfort one another with, with these words. These are comforting words. Why? Because we're going to be removed and then the tribulation begins. Now, it's not too comforting if I, I'm going to experience some tribulation to say the truth, okay? Now, this is where we want to get into, uh, well, let me, let me take you to another scripture, okay? So that's uh, the second rapture verse. I want to take you to, um, this is the one of Jesus, okay? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. This is the... Um, the upper room discourse, right before it goes to the cross. Now, I alluded to this prior, uh, prior in one of the teachings there, right? This is um, when uh, he promises them that uh, he's going to give them a mansion. Remember? Is that mansion uh, Beverly Hills uh, house there? Okay. Some people say, that's what I want. No, he's not talking about that. A better, a better transliteration is, is dwelling places. In my father's house are, better, are, are many dwelling places. Now, how are you going to dwell in heaven? It's not going to be in this body, right? It's going to be in a resurrected body. Okay, so... Jesus begins to tell them about this. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let's read. Jesus said this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. Okay? That's not a physical, right, house or anything. He's talking about a place where he can dwell in heaven with them, right? So, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, how does Jesus go and prepare a place for them? He goes to the cross of Calvary, right? Just in a matter of hours as he, after he gives his teaching, he goes to the cross of Calvary. What happens? He pays the price for sins. The perfect man 
God becoming man became the perfect man, became the perfect sacrifice, and then he sacrificed, what, for the sins of the world. And so the sins are removed, and then we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the Bible teach? All those with the Holy Spirit are going to get a resurrected body. Right? And so that's the interesting thing, right? He goes and prepares a place for you. How does he? It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, his own blood. And through his blood, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches when Jesus comes again, he's going to look for everyone that has the Holy Spirit in them. The down payment guaranteeing what? A resurrected body. Right? And so this is how he went to prepare a place for them, is to go to the cross of Calvary. So that now, when he comes again, all those with the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ are going to receive their body made for the heavens. And so he says, and I go to prepare a place for you, went to the cross. I will come again. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So in his second coming, he's going to come again, and he's going to give you, what, a resurrected body at the rapture of the church. Only those with the Holy Spirit are going to receive that resurrected body. And so he says, I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, so that you would go to heaven. You see how what he's teaching here, what he's alluding to? Right? He's alluding to the rapture of the church. He goes to prepare a place for you. You're going to receive that at the rapture of the church. But you're only going to receive that because he's prepared a place for you there through the cross of Calvary to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a down payment when he comes again to receive that inheritance. Okay? And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way and Jesus said to him I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me so that's how we receive our resurrected bodies through Jesus Christ faith in Jesus Christ what he did at the cross of Calvary that's how we receive our inheritance right at the rapture of the church okay lastly let me give you um, in terms of the description of the rapture Philippians chapter 3 Verses 17 through 21. This speaks to our citizenship in heaven, right? When we become born again, we're no longer citizens of this earth. We're citizens of heaven. But once we're citizens of heaven, that guarantees us, right, that passport to heaven, which would be what? Our resurrected bodies, okay? So Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, let me begin reading there. It says, Brethren, join in following me, or following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I, told, I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Okay, so he's separating, he's discerning between what? The things of this life and the things of eternal life. Okay, now he goes on to write, he says, For our citizenship is now in heaven. Once you become born again, you're no longer a citizen of this world, so why should we live like one? We're citizens of heaven, right? And he says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. We're waiting to go home. That's our citizenship. We're not living like this is our home. We're living what? Our home is in heaven. That's where our citizen. It's this life of faith, right? So he says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. This is going to happen at the rapture. 
right? As we're living, as we're serving the Lord, right? Our eyes are focused on Him, right? He's going to now come. He's going to rapture church. He's going to give us an eternal body made for the heavens, like His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to even, even to subdue all things to Himself. Okay, so these give a description of the rapture. What's going to happen? The dead in Christ is going to rise first, right? And then we are living to be caught up together with Him in the air. Now, I want to give you the philosophical arguments of the rapture, okay? And I alluded to them already in the Old Testament. This is one example, Genesis chapter 18. If you read that account, remember when God pronounces judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember these angelic beings, but I believe one of them is, is Christ, a Christophany, right? You can study that in Genesis chapter 18. But remember the account there. Lot, he went to dwell in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Abraham is up there, remember, he's kind of praying over his, over his, uh, over his uh, nephew Lot. Now Lot is of the faith, not because of all the things he did. He did a lot of mistakes, but because of his faith, he's declared righteous. Not because of his, so much his works, right? None of us are, right? But he had a faith, so he's declared righteous. And so that's the point here. And so what God is going to do, he's going to pronounce judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So he visits Abraham. And Abraham begins to barter with him because Abraham knows his nephew Lot is down there. And he says, well, Lord, are you going to destroy that city if you find 50 righteous? And Lord says, no. Are you going to destroy the city if you find 40 righteous? You see where Abraham's going, right? And so he goes all the way down to 10. He says, are you going to destroy the city if you find 10 righteous? He says, no, I'm not. But you know what's interesting? Is that they couldn't even find 10 righteous in that city. But does he destroy the righteous? No, remember he pulls Lot and his family out. And then he destroys them. So the philosophical argument is that God is always going to remove the righteous before he judges. That's a powerful argument, I believe. And there's other scriptures that talk to that. Second Peter, actually let me read you. Genesis chapter 18, verse 23 says, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't. He says, No. I'm not. I'm going to move, remove Lot and his family. And then Peter comments on that. He says, you know, if the Lord delivered righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So if the Lord did that to Lot, what Peter is saying is that when it comes time for the judgment of the tribulation, I believe, I believe he's saying that he's able to pull out the righteous before that. And that's from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Okay, these are the philosophical argument, arguments that Jesus is going to remove those of the faith before the tribulation, before purging this earth from sin. Okay? Let me give you some more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes this, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Okay, so when you see this reference to the day of the Lord, it's speaking to the latter days, right? The days after this church. It's that last dispensation that leads us to the eternal state, okay? It begins at the rapture of the church, right? Goes on through the tribulation, through the millennial kingdom, and into the eternal state. I believe that the day of the Lord speaks up to that whole segment there. 
It's the time after the dispensation of grace. Okay, so when it says that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, he's referring to the rapture. It begins at the rapture. Do we know when the rapture is going to come? No, we don't. It comes as a thief in the night. You know, when you read that parable that Jesus gave about the ten virgins, right? Five were sleeping, or they're all sleeping, but five didn't have the oil, and five didn't. So it's going to come when we don't expect. All right, so it says that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Verse 5, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the light, of the night, or, uh, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now here's the key. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Who's the us? The church. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So, I don't believe it's too comforting to the church if we're going to live through the tribulation. <laughs> Get your head cut off, right? For not taking the mark of the beast. How are we comforted that he's going to what? He's going to remove the righteous before judgment occurs. So I don't know about you people. I want to be on that side, right? Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one last one. Actually, two more I'm going to give you, okay? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Again, this comes under the philosophical reason why he removes the righteous, right, before judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 says, Now, verse 1, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. As I mentioned, there are false teachers coming in Thessalonica and they're saying, Hey, the day of the Lord has already come. And you missed it. And he says, No, they're false teachers. And he starts to give a description of recognizing when the day of the Lord comes, okay? It says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And then the man of sin is revealed. Who's this man of sin? It's the Antichrist, okay? So that's how you know the day of the Lord is upon us, that you're in the tribulation, that the man of sin or the Antichrist is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, we know that the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. All the spirit, right? Antichrist meaning what? A false Christ, a counterfeit Christ. I think this whole ecumenical movement is the spirit of Antichrist, a false Christ, false doctrine, right? Looks like Christ, right? But they try to combine everything, kind of like that compromised church, right? And we connected to the um, imperial church period, right? When um, uh, Constantine watered down the, uh, the doctrines there, right? It's kind of happening again, isn't it? And so we see that this is a time of falling away, right? It says this man of sin is going to be revealed to him during that time. And so this Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist is already alive and well, but this Antichrist is going to appear like Christ and deceive many. It says, the man of sin is revealed during this time of the tribulation, the son of perdition who opposes 
and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the time of the tribulation, after the church is raptured. Now verse 5 says this, it says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining. What is restraining the person of the Antichrist coming? That he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. But the person Antichrist is not shown himself yet. Right? It says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who, re who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who's the he? Well, your translator has kind of interpreted it for you. I think it's a good interpretation. He is the Holy Spirit. Until, until Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I believe he is the Holy Spirit working in the true church. So even though the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well, a lot of false doctrine going on, the person of Antichrist is not going to be revealed until he who now restrains is removed. He is the Holy Spirit in the church who is raptured. Right? And so you've heard the saying, right? We, the church, should not be looking for Antichrist. You should be looking for what? Jesus Christ to take us home. And then the Antichrist will be revealed. Okay? Again, this is support for removing the righteous before what? The wicked comes and starts to devour this earth. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Okay, so these are scriptures on the rapture of the church. When, why, and how. Okay? Now finally, I want to take you to one passage. Luke chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 7, 37. Because the question has to be, well, what is the church doing after it's raptured? What are they doing? All right. Well, we feel it's the church. We know it's the church by these 24 elders that are wearing what? The crowns of the victor, right? They're representation of the church that has what? Finished the race. And they have that crown of victor, right? But what is the church doing in heaven? This is where I want to, talk to you, take you to Luke chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 37. This is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it gives us some details. And it's radical to me. Okay, so uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 37. Jesus said this, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. What is he teaching? In this life of faith. Let your waist be girded. He says, you're serving, aren't you? How many people are serving in this church? How many people are being served? That's okay to be served, right? You need people to be served, you serve. But he says, let your waist be girded. You know, it's better to serve. Do you know there's a scripture that says it's better to give than to receive? Anybody hear that? You know, it's better to serve. You know why? For the sole reason, that's what your Lord did. Gospel of Mark, right, he came as what? The suffering servant to give his life a ransom for many. This is the king of kings, Lord of lords. This is God. You think a king should be served, right? No, he came as the suffering servant. He served. He served unto death on the cross, right? So he says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, filled with the Spirit. 
You ought to be serving, right? And you yourselves be like men who wait for the master when we will return, excuse me, when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Okay, so while we're waiting for the Lord's return, we ought to be serving, serving the Lord and serving one another. But then note this, verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. Thanks again for joining us in our podcast of Calvary Chapel, Agua Park. We hope and pray that you have been blessed by the teaching and join us again as we continue to study the Word of God. Once again, you can always visit us on our homepage at ccechopart.com for more information and teachings from Pastor David. To God be the glory.